today's scripture is being taken from 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 27. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, but they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Welcome again to Holy Trinity. I'm John, one of the pastors here. What a, what a beautiful Sunday in Chicago. Great day to uh, avoid the taste of Chicago and uh, all the crowds that, that will be there. One of the most, um, the biggest challenges for what might be called new urbanites is the the stunning complexity of the city. All the worldviews that are sort of piled on one another, the kind of density and and diversity of the city and learning how to relate to people that may have grown up in very different circumstances than you. Uh, The the author of um, Charlotte's Web, that little uh, children's novel by E.B. White once wrote a a little, um, you could almost call it like a love letter to New York City. In 1948, he was in the city of New York and he was in a a non-air-conditioned hotel room and then some cafes and he wrote a little essay really, but it's the book now called Here Is New York. And one of the things he observed is that there's almost like three different kinds of New York depending on the three on what he calls three different kinds of New Yorkers the those who live grew up and were born in New York and then those commuters that um, commute into the city and then um, those who come to the city in order to kind of make their mark and find their destiny here's what he said there are roughly three New Yorks there is first The New York of the man or woman who was born here, who takes the city for granted and accepts its size and its turbulence as natural and inevitable. And then there is the New York of the commuter, the city that is devoured by locusts each day and spat out at night. Okay. And then third, there's the the New York of the person who's born somewhere else and came to New York in quest of something. And he says, commuters give the city its... It's tidal restlessness, like the sense of it always being moving. And natives give it its solidity and its continuity, sort of from one generation to the next. 
And um, then he says, but settlers give it its passion. So he's saying that those who move to the city to sort of make their mark, give, there's a kind of passion that those people have. And so it is with Chicago that many people come to the city for a degree or to define themselves personally, to find a group of people that is different from the town which they grew up in and to find a kind of um, community that they're looking for. But there, in any case, there's this kind of kaleidoscope of diversity in the city. And so one of the questions is, how do you, how does one who has their own particular religious beliefs, in particular about what Sully called Jesus being Lord, how do you relate to people that are so diverse? A city where Islam is pressed up against scientific naturalism, is pressed, pressed up against kind of therapeutic Christianity. Can the gospel be unchanging in a culture of change? And what I want to talk to you about today, you could call gospel primacy or gospel primacy and gospel flexibility. Really, the here's the title for today is the joy of gospel primacy, and I want to introduce this topic to you and kind of unpack it with you. Uh, what we find in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 27 is that, that God has called the Apostle Paul to a particular kind of what you might call extraordinary flexibility in order to keep the gospel primary. He's willing to adapt almost anything in order to make sure that he doesn't create a stumbling block for others with the, with the gospel. So my claim is this, is that a world of diversity requires a kind of joyful gospel primacy that leads to gospel flexibility. That we, we hold the gospel primary and it leads to a kind of uh, flexibility. Here's the question I want to address today is how, how do we live with this kind of joyful flexibility? How do we live with this kind of joyful flexibility in the context of radical diversity? And, and my aim really is just to say, learn the discipline of gospel primacy. Learn the discipline of what you might call gospel flexibility. We bow with me in prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for this day, for a beautiful summer day. We thank you for the radical diversity of our city, for people uh, really from all over the world who come into Chicago, for those who have been raised here in our post-Catholic, post-industrial uh, city, and those who come seeking a new job or have a new job and are, are brought on this kind of tidal wave of restlessness into our city. I pray, Lord, that for all of us that you would increase our joy by increasing our ability, our, well, increasing our love of Jesus first, and then increasing uh, our love of the gospel and our skills in cultural agility. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I'm just going to define gospel primacy right at the beginning because that's kind of the topic that we're on, the, the joy of gospel primacy. You might define it this way, that gospel primacy is the commitment of the followers of Jesus to make Jesus and his good news more important than politics or our preferences or our comforts or our culture. Let me say that again, that, that gospel primacy is the desire and the skill to make who Jesus is and the message that he brings 
more important than our politics, our preferences, our culture, and our comforts. So that's what we're going to be thinking about. And really the idea for Paul comes later, this idea of gospel primacy comes in chapter 15, verse 1. And I'll just say this because this term, gospel primacy, isn't used very much, but it's something that's kind of very, been very important to Holy Trinity. And it comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 2. Sorry, for, verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. And then he goes on to define the gospel. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He says it's of first importance. But what happens very often in churches... And what happens because of our tendency towards moralism is that we tend to elevate something else above the gospel, which then becomes a stumbling block. My uh, neighbor for a period of time was a single African-American small business owner, kind of neo-Buddhist, lesbian, And she told me that part of her spiritual journey was that she had been going to a Southside African-American church that told she had pants on, and they told her she couldn't wear pants at church. And she said, that that was like my last Sunday. Literally, the pastor told her that. I, I say that not to critique anyone at the moment, but merely to say that the tendency can be to put something else that is dress or politics above the gospel. And then that reshapes what the gospel message is. So I'm just going to give you three lessons this morning on gospel primacy. The first one is this, is, and this is from verses 19 to 22, the first part, is that gospel primacy requires cultural agility. Let me just say that again. Gospel primacy requires cultural agility, verses 19 to 22. Some of you uh, like tennis, others of you hate tennis. Some of you caught a few uh, snippets of Wimbledon. There was this play that uh, Novak, I'm not going to try to say his last name, the Serbian tennis player, okay? In the quarterfinals, there's this play where Yannick Sinner, an Italian player, hits a shot to his forehand. So Novak goes running to the right side of the court Hits a really nice shot back, but the other player, Yannick, just kind of puts it into the left side of his court. So he goes running, full speed, full out sprint, and actually does the splits as he does a a double backhand. And he hits it across uh, the court to the opposite side of Yannick out of his reach. (laughs) And after he does the splits, he's on his chest. And he does like an eagle position like this, as if he's sort of flying. Anyway, how does he do that? Well, training is one thing, but also he has incredible dexterity or flexibility. And what the he's flexible in order to win, which is what Paul says in this first little section. He says, I'm flexible because I want to win. In fact, he says the word win five times. He gives a list of four different kinds of people in this little section here where he says, I I can adapt to this, to the Jews, because I want to win them. I can adapt to those who are under the law, because I want to win them. I can adapt to those who are outside of the law, because I want to win them. And I can adapt to the weak, because I want to win them as well. And this section's following on the previous section, actually, 
the, the, the section in chapter 8 where what Paul has said is that the decisions that we make around, especially those who are outside of the gospel, who don't know who Jesus is, can often put a stumbling block in front of them hearing the amazing, the life-giving, the freeing message of Jesus. And so Paul is basically saying, I'm willing to adapt everything in order to win some. Look at what it says there in verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. And to those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. What he's saying is, with, with some of the Jews who, who did not believe in Jesus, if he wanted to be with them and they ate kosher, he'd eat kosher. I don't have a problem with that. He's not bound to eat kosher. The, the second category where it says those under the law is related to the Jews. It's another way of speaking of the Jews. And he says those who are under the weight of the law, say the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, which are called the mitzvot, they're, they're Jews today that, that hold to all of the Old Testament ceremonial law and believe that they need to uphold all of these commandments. And Paul can live as if he's under the law, but he says, even then, I'm not under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside of the law. That is, with those who were not really raised in religious environments, Paul is flexible enough to not hold to all of the ceremonial law that the Jews were holding to, that I might win those outside the law. So he's saying he's incredibly flexible. He says, look, in fact, look at verse 21. It's interesting. He says, not being outside the law, but under the law of Christ. In his view, in his mind, the law of Christ, which is the law of love that Christ had fulfilled at the cross, is his law. And so love actually becomes the way that he learns to relate to every person. Paul here, it's interesting because Paul is a, a Pharisee here and he's writing this in a way that says that he's very culturally uh, uh, flexible. Now I want you to, you might say, um, he sounds like a chameleon. Like this guy just like changes color with whatever color of the other people around him, he's just gonna change that. Or he sounds like a jellyfish, you know, that just kind of, this guy's got no spine at all. But the point is, is not, not that Paul has no spine. It's that Jesus is his spine. The gospel is his spine. And it's so foreign to us because we often make our cultural preferences, and especially in North American culture today, our political preferences, our spine. And then we try to add the gospel of Jesus to this. Uh, I'm just going to give you what I'm going to call four stages of gospel flexibility. This is a little bit of application to think about how do you grow in this. So the first stage of, of what you might call gospel flexibility is, is just um, cultural awareness, like learning about other people, learning about other cultures. That might be through reading, especially through friendship. The second one is cultural sensitivity. So you become aware, and then you're building bonds of friendship, and you're very sensitive. You're able to eat Eid with a Muslim, say, okay? That's, that's more, that's kind of the, the cultural sensitivity. Then is, the next stage is cultural flexibility, where you're sort of beginning to practice. You, you have the cultural awareness, you have some cultural sensitivity, and then you have some flexibility as well, 
And then the last one I'll just call cultural agility. That's Novak, okay? He's like, this dude is agile. The Apostle Paul, like, we shouldn't compare ourselves to him because he was like the greatest missionary of all time and had this incredible ability. And I'll just ask you, what level of cultural flexibility are you at right now on a scale of one to 10? If you're a three, please stand up. No, I'm not gonna do that to you. But, but if you're a three, think about trying to get to a four. If you're a nine, you're probably deceiving yourself and you're actually a seven, right? No. So the point that Paul is making here is that if you're gonna hold the gospel at the highest point, then you have to learn incredible flexibility in your lifestyle without giving up your convictions. Just because you're with someone who's very different from you and you're listening to them doesn't mean that you agree with their point of view, but can you restate their point of view? Can you tell them, so? oh, I'm understanding your perspective more effectively now, and this is what you are saying. So the first principle there is that gospel primacy requires cultural flexibility. You could say that that's the what of gospel flexibility. The, the second uh, is, is kind of the why. I'll put it this way. This is the second lesson here, which is that gospel primacy requires prizing who Jesus is and what he has done above all other things, above politics, above preferences, above culture, above comfort. There's a YouTube video by Simon Sinek that says, start with why. And he, t- he has these sort of three circles and the inner circle is why and then what and then, and then how. But his point is that, that if you want people to care about what you care about, then especially focusing on the why is important. And you get that why here in verses, uh, in the second little section, verse 22b and then to verse 23, here's what he says. He says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them its blessings. It's really interesting that Paul says that I might save some. I mean, Jesus is the savior. He's the one who saves. But Paul has so closely aligned himself with the mission of Jesus that he's saying that he's participating in someone's salvation. It's also interesting that he says here, I've become all things to all people, because usually if you ever hear the phrase, all things to all people in our culture today, it goes like this. Well, you can't be all things to all people, right? You you can't. And Paul, that's what the world does. And Paul says, actually, I have become all things to all people so that I might win some. Um, The gospel that Paul is referring to here is this life-transforming message that that he came into the world, taught on the kingdom of God, showed a different lifestyle, was forsaken by his own people. They rejected him. Crucified by the Romans. Gasping for breath on a cross. In our place. Our sins being piled upon him. Put into a tomb. No motion for three days. And then he, the creator of the earth begins to stir, begins to come alive again. He defeats death. He gives us the forgiveness that we need. What Paul is saying is that message is the most important message in the whole world that God has forgiven our sins. 
that he is going to, through his resurrection, create an entirely new creation. Not just the forgiveness of sins, but all things being made new. What Paul is saying here is that is the most important thing to him. There's, there's a three words there that, that I'll, I'll begin with asking that verse. One is salvation, that I might save some for the sake of the gospel. And then the third little part there is that I may share with them in its blessings. I was talking with one of my brothers this last week, and there's an annual retreat that a bunch of my college buddies uh, always go on every October that I never go to. And uh, he was, as how are the guys doing, you know? And he was just, I mean, it's, it's been more than five years since we graduated from college. And so <laughs> he's been, what are you laughing at? And so uh, he's just talking about how, the, how all the guys are doing. And he said that a bunch of them just said, you know what, I'm kind of done with church. Not necessarily done with Jesus, but done, and these, these are grown men, my age, in their mid-30s, and so, <laughs> no, these, guys, these guys have said that they're, they're kind of done with church. Something, some kind of stumbling block was put in their way, and I'm convinced that oftentimes, the North American church has forgotten what Paul calls here the blessings of the gospel, like the majesty of Jesus the welcoming nature of Jesus. Here's a person, the Son of God, who can go and speak to the most intellectually university-trained person and have a message for them. And then go to the most morally outcast woman and have a message for her. And say, hey, there's some water that you don't know about that I would like to give to you. There's some... I just want to, I want to mention in the book of the, the Corinthian correspondence just a couple of blessings of the gospel. Because I want you to see the why a little bit here. Uh, one of the blessings of the gospel, um, you might call it generative comfort. Here's what generative comfort is. It's when you are going through a trial that God flips around on you and uses it so that you can be a source of comfort to other people. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter verses 3 to 5. And what the Apostle Paul there says, I'm just going to read it so that I can give it to you as accurately as possible. This is one of the blessings of the gospel that Paul is willing to reshape his life for. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us in our affliction. Listen to this. This is the generative part. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. You ask, why am I going through this trial sometimes? Maybe you're going through this trial so that you can be the master, so to speak, or the one who's a little bit ahead to teach. And he says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So one of the blessings of the gospel is that it completely reorients what trials are about. We think that our life is about acquisition of possessions and things like that. And so then our trials, our, our, our struggles, our anomalies, and we say, why did that come into our life? But the center of, of 
The meaning of life is that a person suffered on a cross, the Son of God, for us. And so when you suffer, you're being conformed to him. Why? So that you can, in five years and seven years, say, yeah, I went through cancer too. Or one of my children walked away also. So that's a blessing, generative comfort. Another one is, uh, and I'm just taking these three examples from uh, the Corinthian correspondence. Another one is in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. If you think of the first one as comfort, the next one is wisdom. And one of the blessings that comes with the gospel, Paul says, you have the mind of Christ. And he's speaking to a group of people who, have, who in the Greco-Roman culture have really started to like, grab on to wisdom like we know so much and he's flipping that around and saying you know what if you're if you believe in the cross of Jesus Christ that he has called you then you have the mind of Christ in other words there are unsearchable unlimited opportunities to take the wisdom of God in James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men abundantly and without approach, reproach. Comfort, wisdom, and then the last one I'll just say is, um, is calling. This is from the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul says that he's called, and then he says that they're called. Which is all this to say is that you have a purpose in your life, that God has called you, he's given you a purpose. It's very difficult to live without purpose in our lives. And we'll see that a little bit in the next little section. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. Can you spend a little bit of time going back to the why, everything that God has done for you? Forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit. Is there someone who's in the pit right now who needs to be brought out, feet placed on a rock, and give it a new song. That's what Psalm 103 says Jesus does for us. I gotta hurry to the last section. So gospel primacy gives birth to this kind of cultural flexibility. Gospel primacy prizes Jesus and his good news, what he has done, come into the world to do above anything else, above politics, preferences, culture, or comfort. And then the how is that gospel Primacy requires, this is going to sound a little strange, but it requires punching with purpose. Okay, he says, I don't box like just aimlessly. I'm just not swinging. I'm trying to connect with the other person. When I was, I remember the very first neighborhood fight that I ever saw was with, I was, must have been 11 years old or so. And my cousin uh, was little, he, he was bigger than I was then, um, but he was a, kind of big guy, and then there's a guy across the street. Somehow they got mad at each other and insulted each other. It's the first time I was like, oh, there is a way to punch, because the guy from across the street was punching like this. Like, he literally had no idea how to punch, and my cousin just like this, boop, boop, like that. The Apostle Paul says that sometimes in our lives, it's like we're just swinging at the air. You ever seen a runner? The best runners have a goal and a destination and they allow the goal and the destination to channel all of their energies towards where they are going. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, if the gospel is the prize, if there's a day when he's going to put a wreath on your head and say, well done, my good and faithful servant, then run for that. 
Put, put aside the distractions of the world. Compete with a purpose is what he says. Verse 24. He says, do you not know that in a runner, sorry, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? Run so that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Right? There's a little, there's a, you know, there's a medallion that racers get around their neck when they finish a race or when they win a race. In the Greco-Roman times, they would put a wreath on your head. And his imagery is, you know what, it's one thing to win a race that you run in the first century, and it's another thing to finish the eternal race and have a crown, have a wreath be put on your head. He's talking about purposeful living and purposeful running. I don't know if you know the name Khalid Kanuchi, but he's a he is a Moroccan runner that uh, won twice, won the Chicago Marathon. One time he, in 2000, he won and uh, set the American world record. And uh, guess how fast his time was? Two hours and seven minutes, which means that he's running 12.31 miles per hour, and he's running a 4.51 mile, right? So first of all, Half of us can't run a mile, right? <laughs> right? And then those who can run maybe can finish in 10 minutes, right? And there's probably like three people here who can run consistently uh, sub six minute miles. One of them's Dave Wolf, who's here today. Thank you, David, for being here. <laughs> His wife's saying no. Uh, so, how many of you can run, say, a sub six minute mile? And then, how many of you could run a sub five minute mile? None of us can. But could you imagine running 26.2 miles at a 4.51 pace? Incredible. How does he do that? Well, two things. One is talent. The other is training. And that's what Paul is saying. He said, look, at sometimes some of us seem so undisciplined that when we're running, like if, you, if you're watching a marathon and somebody's like weaving a little bit and going towards the right and then going towards the left, first of all, that guy's not going to win. And second of all, something's wrong with them. Like they're having heat stroke right now. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, is the most important thing in the world to you this incredible person? came into the world for you? And if so, then keep running. The Apostle Paul's like one of those guys on the sideline. He's got the sign going, you can do it, yeah. Like, keep running. Don't give up. That's what Paul is saying. Every athlete exercises control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable at the beach uh, this last week, I saw somebody practicing Tai Chi. And I wasn't thinking about this text, but I literally wondered, like, he's kind of doing this, you know. And I was just wondering, does he ever do that in a battle, like, <laughs> against someone? Or is it all mental? And, and nothing against that as a congrats to that person who's doing that. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is there is this kind of engagement that comes from actually being in the battle. Some of you feel you're weary because you've been competing for the world 
and the gospel has kind of faded from view. That's, that's okay. If you fall down in the race, get up and keep running. Some of you feel a little overwhelmed, a little too lazy to compete right now. Paul's just saying, that's okay. Get up. Keep going. Our family, our family loves competition. Um, and I'll just give you the ranking of who's the most competitive and who's the least competitive. Verse 27 says, but I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That sounds weird that the Apostle Paul says that he might be disqualified. But how many pastors have we seen go off the rails? How many friends do you have that started well and then started running aimlessly? <laughs> so Paul saying, hey, this is a race. This is a competition, so to speak. The race has already been won for you, but press on in discipline. Are there areas of your life that you feel like, you know what, this might someday disqualify me? Is there something you need to say no to today? Just a little bit to say, you know what, I'm going to be in charge. He says, I buffet my body to make it my slave, which has often been reinterpret as I buffet my body to make it my slave, right? But, but Paul is emphasizing discipline here. And God's in, God is inviting you to join in his mission. You're already in his mission. He's just saying, keep going. And learn that flexibility. Just a couple of applications that I want to mention here. One is learn to listen across cultures. Is there a book you want to read? about a, a particular people group in the city. I'm just gonna mention a few different people groups. International students in our city need Jesus. There's a huge opportunity in the city of Chicago to befriend and show the love of Christ to the LGBTQ community. There's been huge um, bridges that have been burned with that community ways in which the church has harshly judged and elevated homosexual or lesbian behavior as worse than any other behavior? Are there ways to build bridges to that community? Uh, think of the, uh, the student community, 50,000 students around here. Shout out to UIC, but you also got um, the Art Institute of Chicago. Just like, what can you learn about another culture? Um, and then maybe just the, the, those who are, have become agnostic through scientific university training. Like, what can you learn? That's all. Keep on learning. Keep on training. Build friendships across, listen across cultures. Build friendships across cultures. Commit to being a missionary. You don't have to be a pastor or an evangelist to be a missionary. It's better if you wouldn't. People think pastors are very strange. And they usually are. They are, right? Commit to grow in cultural agility. Like how can you learn to, without compromising, the truth of the gospel? How can you grow in that? Take an evangelism class from Jesse next time it comes around. Shout out to Jesse over there. Support those who are called to global mission. Also, there's some people who like their full-time cultural uh, agile people. 
support them. And then last, just get the why again. Go back to the why. It all makes more sense if you get the why. This person left his kingdom. This person left his ruling place. This person dove down into the mud and the muck and came up gasping for air with your name in his mind, your name in his heart, and came for you. Just get the why of the cultural agility. He rose again to share the blessings of the gospel. A world of diversity requires the joyful flexibility of gospel primacy. And how do you learn this flexibility in a, in a culture of radical diversity? It's called gospel primacy. I'll end with E.B. White one more time. Uh, he writes in that same essay, he says, there's an often quoted thumbnail sketch of New York which goes like this, it's a wonderful place but I would hate to live there. The first time my wife and I with, uh, with Dave and Lisa Helm drove through the neighborhoods of the south side, my wife was whistling this little tune. <laughs> it's a nice place to visit, but I sure wouldn't want to live there. We drove by this pothole that in our minds was like 27 feet wide and 27 feet deep. What, uh, what E.B. White goes on to say is the city of New York is literally a composite of tens of thousands of tiny neighborhood units. No matter where you live in New York, you'll find within a block or two a grocery shop, a barber shop, a newsstand. The city is like poetry. It compresses all life, all races, all, all breeds into a small space and adds music and the accompaniment of inter internal engines. What a great opportunity to be culturally curious, to learn about other cultures, and then to prize the message of Jesus above all things. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this, uh, this text from this evangelist, the Apostle Paul, who teaches us gospel flexibility. I, I pray especially, Lord, for those of us whose earlier days in life, earlier years in life, had more passion, seemed to know you better, had greater love for you flicker again in our hearts and cause us to remember the deep love that you have for us. And then for those, Lord, who are outside looking in, hearing this message, confused, welcome them in into your extraordinary life-giving kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.